0: Welcome to Navigating UK Merger Control, a podcast from DLA Piper. My name is Sarah Smith, and I'm a partner in the firm's competition practice. This podcast is aimed at those encountering the UK merger control regime for the first time or becoming reacquainted with it. As we have found during the series, the UK regime has a number of key differences to the US and European regimes, which listeners may be used to, and it presents its own unique challenges. In this series, the DLA Piper UK competition team has been joined by past and present members of the UK Competition and Markets Authority, our own colleagues from across the firm, and an economist, all of whom have helped us to demystify the system. In this episode, our sixth and final of the series, we will be looking at how the CMA uses its merger control powers to investigate so-called killer acquisitions where incumbent firms acquire an innovative competitor or future competitor that may currently be a small player, but in order to remove it as an emerging competitive threat. The share of supply test, discussed in detail in episode one, allows the UK a wide discretion to investigate so-called killer acquisitions. And this has been a key reason why UK merger control is so often a concern in the boardroom and sometimes a source of controversy. However, the CMA is not alone in wanting to look at these types of transactions and in seeing them as potential concerns, especially in the tech and pharma markets, and even where the target has low revenue and or market share. This episode will also briefly cover how the US and EU authorities are approaching these issues using new powers like the Digital Markets Act and old powers like Article 22 of the EU merger regulation to try and make sure that these types of deals don't fall through the cracks. To discuss these issues we'll be joined by Kay Jabelli. Kay is counsel for the Computer and Communications Industry Association and presents the Monopoly Attack podcast which focuses on antitrust in the tech sector. Kay will speak with Chloe Cumber a senior associate in the UK DLA Piper competition team.
1: Thank you for that introduction Sarah and Kay thank you so much for joining us today. So we're interested to get this conversation started about tech mergers. We've been discussing. UK Merge Control, primarily this series. So we wanted to get your take on the CMA's approach to technology mergers.
2: Yeah, the last few years there's been across the board, like from all jurisdictions, a real focus on digital markets and competition authorities are kind of lifting up rocks all over the place, looking for new ways to approach what is perceived as a problem with the large scale and scope of a handful of US tech companies. And so the CMA is, is definitely not far behind and in many ways leading this kind of new charge to rein in big tech. And we see more than ever headlines in the press talking about the reining in of big tech and various government efforts to do so in various ways. Um, there, you know, There's new approaches to data protection law. There's new approaches to uh, dominance cases. There's new approaches to regulation, new regulatory regimes popping up and as well, new approaches to merger control. And merger control is really you know one of the interesting ones because it's perceived as one of the ways that tech companies have used their financial strength to grow, to expand their market power, and potentially that that could be a problem. It is also kind of a, a funny one because there's a lot of ways that the success of tech companies, the success of the tech ecosystem, the success and the value that is created through the new economic wealth that is created in the digital sector is a result of a robust opportunity for uh, founders to exit and for investors to make returns on their investments and for uh, new entrepreneurs to have opportunities and be able to take risks.
1: So you've talked a lot there about the kind of new approaches or, or challenges for the competition authorities in approaching in particular tech mergers. Would you like to ex- kind of explore that in a little bit more detail?
2: Yeah, I think historically, merger control has been worried about consolidation of markets. You know, you're know, you talking about a reduction in the number of competitors, what we call sort of horizontal theories of harm, attempts by companies to buy their rivals or buy smaller rivals, reduce the number of players in the market, increase the concentration in the market, increase their market shares through acquisition. And so in, in that context, And having used the tools, authorities having used the tools in this way for a very long time, they kind of narrowed their thinking. And I think some of the new theories of harm are very important for authorities to take a look at because that's not really how mergers in the tech space can be a problem. And there's other aspects to consider. So, you know, one of the ways that tech mergers are beneficial is it's not about direct acquisition of substitutes, but it's about increasing the capabilities of a firm by having new things that are added into an ecosystem. You're bringing on complementors that they themselves might not be able to closely align their innovation efforts or their development efforts in a way that is going to be into the benefit of the ecosystem as a whole. But then by being able to pump in a lot of money into this startup, and kind of direct its development activities sort of a company that's more at the center of an ecosystem or or that operates a very important platform that company can kind of like help that ecosystem become more competitive as against other ecosystems so there's a lot of acquisitions being helpful for ecosystem to ecosystem competition or system to system platform to platform competition and and so it's not really about okay let's acquire a a substitute or let's acquire a potential direct rival but getting a complementer this is kind of comes in as vertical or conglomerate theories of harm, but historically, those have been totally underdeveloped by competition authorities. So there's a lot of new ways of having to to think about these and considering the risks of non-intervention. But then I think also the risks of intervention are a little bit different because when you're talking about something that's going to unlock a lot of value by increasing potential platform-to-platform competition, by enabling a small company that maybe couldn't otherwise scale to scale, then you're creating a lot of benefit that isn't the traditional kind of benefit that you have in the industrial type of competition either. The traditional industrial competition benefit of merger is okay, you're reducing costs. And so, you know, you're you're cutting jobs, you're reducing duplication. And then the big question is, well, and I think legitimately, there's a bit of an assumption that if you're going to be cutting costs, that cost saving isn't necessarily going to be passed on to consumers. And so there's a quite a high burden to prove these benefits that, okay, actually, yeah, yes, we're cutting costs, but that's not just going to be more profit that's going to be internalized by the firm. That's going to be savings that we will need to pass on to consumers because of existing competition. The dynamic in the tech sector is completely different. The benefits of having complementers is like directly beneficial to the consumer you're increasing product integrations you're making things easier for consumers you're you know adding more capabilities to the firm that are going to improve the products or services even on a very simple thing where we go okay we're talking about data accumulation oh well data accumulation increases their market power or network accumulation increases market power but network effects by definition mean that the more users there are on a single platform the more helpful it is the more beneficial it is for those users on the platform so There's a direct contradiction there of saying, oh, well, it increases their market power. Yes, but at the same time, it makes the network more useful. If you're talking about uh, using data, oh, yes, it increases the amount of data they have. That might increase their market power. But that also means that they are going to be able to improve their products and services, either because of better customization or because of better learnings that they're going to have that are going to enable them to develop the products and services faster. That all of this means it's like... Tied into the theory of harm, the, the benefit of the transaction. And that's just something that competition authorities aren't used to having to deal with or unpacking the way that the benefits can be part and parcel to the potential harm. I think that's where, you know, even the framework that we have for competition law is right now developing to get that understanding and incorporate that understanding. Because otherwise, there's a real risk of if we take this old industrial model where we just assume that there are no benefits of this concentration then we're going to be prohibiting a bunch of potentially really beneficial transactions.
1: That's really interesting. So you've talked there about how the traditional theories of harm need to be reconsidered in light of the fact that the advantages from tech mergers kind of manifest in different ways. I guess what would be interesting to talk about now would be what are those specific features of the tech markets that make the application of traditional theories of harm or or merger control more challenging for the likes of the CMA or, or other competition authorities around the world?
2: You know, there has been a lot of development over the last years. There's been a lot of competition reports, academic inquiry into this on the theories of harm. So you have new sort of, you know, like data exploitation theories of harm. You've got leveraging theories of harm. You've got self-preferencing theories of harm. A lot of focus right now on, well, when is this a problem? But we've kind of put the cart before the horse or we've jumped the gun here a little bit in terms of not also looking at why these practices take place how these practices can create value that wouldn't otherwise exist how these practices might be necessary for ecosystems to be able to compete against other ecosystems or have digital technologies that can supplant legacy services and you know less digital alternatives that have been around for a long time so you know there's benefits that are being used here which yes, it's, you know, it's why these companies are competitive, but you know, I think I always go back to that old canard of competition. Not every competitive advantage is anti-competitive. In fact, you wanna encourage companies to develop competitive advantages because that's the whole point of competition and that's what generates welfare for consumers. I think another important and difficult aspect is that you can go after acquisitions and in a lot of industries, well, that's fine. But in the tech space, especially a lot of companies don't find product market fit. There's a lot of iteration, a lot of testing, a lot of like, okay, it's a great idea. Let's put a bunch of money and let's see if it works. And then it fails. Now, if these attempts, you know, these entrepreneurs who tried to make something work are discouraged from trying again because it's a dead end and they can't go anywhere, they can't sell the company, they can't sell you know, the team that they've created, they can't sell whatever remains of the business because of potential you know, anti-competitive concerns that are very hypothetical, then those companies might not be formed in the first place. So because exit via acquisition is such an important and increasingly important, you know, fewer and fewer companies are going to IPO these days. So because it's so important, I think, Competition authorities also are at a difficult moment where, okay, well, over-enforcement in the tech space is going to have very different impacts on the wider ecosystem, on investment, on growth, on the economy, on jobs than it would in traditional sectors where you're talking about, okay, established companies. And a lot of times if a company is failing, you're just acquiring like their physical assets. And like I said, a lot of the times an acquisition means you're going to fire a bunch of, (laughs) of people uh, not actually the whole point of the acquisition being because you want to hire those talented individuals.
1: So I think what you talked about there, exit via acquisition, is a really interesting topic and something that I think there's differing views on. So obviously, from the tech side of the market, I think that's often seen as a, you know, like you said, a really, really important route to growth and expansion, particularly for for smaller companies. And it's a, obviously a spur to investment. But on the other side, what we've seen a lot of competition authorities talking about, particularly the CMA and and the DOJ as well, is the idea of a killer acquisition. So you get the likes of the big tech companies and often in the US, as you've pointed out, trying to acquire their rival and therefore stifle innovation. What are your thoughts on that phrase, killer acquisition, when it's applied to tech mergers?
2: I think it's a funny one. Like I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of competition authorities are on this kind of we need to go after tech, we need to do something. There's a lot of pressure on us to do something, whether, you know, for outcry because of the size of the tech companies, or because they're foreign companies or perceived as foreign companies, or because it's just, you know, one segment of the economy shouldn't play such an important role. And so a lot of these different ideas of, well, how do we reign in tech have come out. And this idea of killer acquisitions is kind of borrowed from a completely different sector with very different uh, market dynamics so the term originally comes from a paper an academic paper that was assessing pharma mergers and this was when research and development of various pharmaceuticals would be acquired and actually consolidated so they would stop researching after an acquisition you know one of the two companies efforts and consolidate that so that context of okay, so you merge and then you kill is something that we actually don't see very often in the tech space. Like if you say, Oh, I think it's funny because the term killer acquisition it's kind of like you know, a killer whale. It's like, okay, it's an acquisition that is actually a killer in the market. It's it's in practice, what happens is these companies become more competitive. They're able to scale, they get new investment. They're able to grow much more rapidly after the acquisition as part of a wider company, as part of a wider ecosystem, where those integrations, they can benefit from product integrations that weren't previously available because they were separate companies that had separate development efforts that had separate engineering teams. Now that they're under one roof, I think in economics, it's this um, double monopolization problem or double marginalization problem. You're eliminating those transaction costs that would have otherwise happened between companies that are not part of the same family. Now that they're all in-house, you're able to coordinate a lot better. That's the point of a merger. Um, And that coordination unlocks new value that makes them more competitive. Generally, that's value that is gonna be directly benefiting consumers. And so traditionally, that hasn't been a problem. It only really becomes a problem, I think, in this kind of new perspective of, well, we're just concerned about size as such. We don't like these very big companies being in the market and the concern that they're the effects of having them in the market at that size. And I think in that lens, okay, well, yeah, competition authorities are going to throw everything they can at it to see, you know, what they can come up with. But in, if you look at the real evidence, I don't think you see a lot of cases where tech acquisition has been killing a successful product. Sometimes a product isn't successful. It, It hasn't found product market fit. And like I said earlier, Then it's about acquiring the team. It's acquiring the talent. And it's a nice, you know, it's kind of like a golden parachute for those entrepreneurs, those founders who went and started up the company and now can go to a bigger company. They can, you know, join a bigger team. The risk is much lower having gone and tried that and failed because they have this exit via acquisition option and opportunity. So, yeah, it's, it's funny to see it used, but there's a lot of efforts to come up with new ways to reigning big tech. And I think this is just one of many.
1: So I think that all connects quite nicely together. We've talked about the features of the tech market that make it slightly more challenging for competition authorities. And we've talked about how traditional theories of harm don't necessarily apply in the same way for tech companies. And obviously, as you just said, the phrase killer acquisition is just another way of kind of bringing down these potentially larger transactions that competition authorities seem to be particularly concerned about at the moment. So bringing that back for for tech companies acting in the UK, which may face a possible UK merger review, what do you think that means for them potentially having to go through a a CMA process?
2: I I think the UK has been very, very active on merger control. They have a very low jurisdictional threshold. They can basically call in any case. And after a saber fair logic, the Competition Appeals Tribunal has kind of given them carte blanche to do so. And they have a very large workforce that has a lot of, you know, they have a lot of resources, a lot of manpower, so they can look at a lot of cases. And I don't think they're shy right now to look at a lot of cases. And it's, you know, I don't think it's without controversy. I think it's not a good look post Brexit to be scrutinizing or overly scrutinizing deals that aren't problematic especially if you want to attract more entrepreneurship when tech is such an important part of the UK economy. It's one of the biggest growing sectors of the UK economy. And, you know, in the future, being able to have a leading tech industry, a global tech industry, you need to have this robust investment ecosystem, this startup ecosystem where companies can, you know, you exit, then you go off and start a new company. It's funny, but it's well known in the US this PayPal mafia, all these guys who used to work and women who used to work at PayPal. And then after PayPal got bought, they got a bunch of money. Even Elon Musk is one of them and a bunch of other companies that were formed by people who used to work at PayPal. It's this kind of waterfall of entrepreneurship that uh, serial founders, they can then take their success and then maybe they become angel investors themselves. So that's the kind of ecosystem you wanna try to create. Israel has done a really good job of creating that as well. And when you're able to have this, you know, really focus on the problematic transactions and not focus on trying new theories of harm and exploring new ideas and, well, what kind of regulatory tools can we create to rein in big tech? If your focus is on, well, let's really come up with some creative ways to block digital transactions or new theories of harm and and instead on, well, how do we make sure that the economy is running as smoothly as possible and, and is really accelerating growth, then there's a bit of a disconnect. And I think that can be a bit of a problem. And the CMA has been quite an outlier, I think. I mentioned in terms of jurisdiction, they have one of the lowest thresholds. Lately, the last couple of years, uh, especially post-Brexit, they've been seeing a lot more cases and the proportion of cases that they're subjecting to in-depth review and also their willingness to accept behavioral commitments. So, the CMA is one of the authorities that would rather block a transaction than see it go through on the basis of commitments by the companies that they're going to you know, fix whatever concerns there are. There's just not a lot of trust that the CMA has right now for industry to be able to address these concerns through commitments. And so that is causing a few more headaches for business and will continue to cause uh, headaches until the pendulum swings a little bit back in a more neutral perspective.
1: So you mentioned there that the CMA is a bit of an outlier. I think uh, an interesting case for us to discuss on that basis would be the Facebook Giphy transaction, which the CMA investigated. Is that a transaction that you could give us some detail on?
2: Yeah, <laughs> you're burying the lead there. I did work on that case on behalf of CCIA as counsel, which was an interested third party we were involved in the administrative proceedings and the appeal at the CAT. And it was a very interesting case. Uh, you know, we had concerns with the approach of the CMA in terms of the way they looked at the market. They looked at it very narrowly. They found a SLC, a significant lessening of competition on a kind of a sub-segment of a market that arguably isn't really of substantive concern because they said, well, okay, Giffy." Is actually because it's a player that can develop new technology, new innovative ways of selling advertising in the form of GIF based stickers. That makes them a threat across the whole display advertising sector. And because they're a threat, they can't be acquired. I think, you know, it's kind of strange to take that approach because in the tech industry where software dominates, that is. Basically, uh, you know, every company has innovative capabilities. Software is so malleable. You know, they say software is eating the world because it can do so many different things. And and software can change so rapidly over time. A team can add new features, can go in a different direction. So there's a lot of what traditionally we would call supply side substitution in the tech space. And to say, well, this particular competitor or uh, entrant or potential innovator is you know gonna cause a problem. Without looking at the wider context, what is happening in the display advertising market? We see Meta is losing market share. Google is losing market share. There are new entrants that are coming in. There are new more innovative entrants that are coming in with their own advertising solutions that are similar to Giphy solutions. So was Giphy really that important of a competitor? Is Giphy that important of a competitor to warrant a full order of a divestment and block? Could the issues there not have been addressed through some behavioral commitments? I think it's hard to justify, but the CMA, they did their investigation. They reached their conclusions and the cat wasn't very interested in digging into the substance of that. There's very limited capability for the cat to review the merits on appeal. So it's really tough. But you know, on the bright side, there is this one... New cross check that the CAT introduced that requires an assessment of the pro competitive effects of the transaction that could potentially outweigh any lessening of competition, and the CMA. Well, you know they had, were found to have violated Meta's procedural rights, so they had to redo the decision, and in their redo, the new, the updated final report, they did incorporate this cross check. I think it's in paragraph nine one hundred and fourteen. So it's, it's a it's a good first step, you know, the way that uh, acquisition can increase rivalry and in platform to platform competition can outweigh potential lessening on some subsegment in that ecosystem. That's an important acknowledgement that Kat has uh, introduced. And, and you know, we look forward to the CMA having to assess this aspect of uh, digital transactions in the future, because I, I think that's going to really unlock a better understanding of how competition works in digital markets and how acquisitions you know why acquisitions take place and how acquisitions can create uh, value and benefits for consumers
1: and do you think that in future transactions this pro-competitive effects cross-check could sway the balance or do you think that the CMA views it as more of a kind of obviously the CMA never would say this out loud but as a kind of cross ticking exercise you know they've got to put in a section on this as you say because the cat said they had to
2: I I think it depends on how seriously the CMA takes it, right? If they are interested in understanding how these mergers work, if they are interested in protecting the benefits and value that it can be created for mergers, for UK consumers, for the UK economy, and internationally, and I think they will, and I think they do want to, so I think they will do their duty and really use this as an opportunity to better develop the other side of the coin, you know, the theories of benefits... And I think they could be a real leader internationally in helping translate this stuff that is kind of implicit and understood amongst the business and industry, but it hasn't really entered into the competition law bubble as such.
1: I think we focus a lot today on UK merger control, because obviously that's the focus of this podcast series, but it'd be really interesting just to get a brief kind of overview from you on what you see as the difference in approach between the UK and the European Commission when approaching tech mergers.
2: I think both jurisdictions are putting tech mergers under a lot of scrutiny. The EU has kind of been following a bit the UK in terms of expanding its jurisdictional reach. So recently, a big development has been this new interpretation, so-called, of Article 22 of the EU merger regulation. So basically, for many, many, many years, Article 22 of the EU merger regulation was used by um, national competition authorities that didn't have a merger control regime to be able to send a case that they thought was of concern in their jurisdiction to the commission. Now, the language of the article itself wasn't maybe drafted so much with this in mind, but it was a little bit ambiguous, and the commission has now reinterpreted it and understood it and is applying it to mean that any transaction... Regardless of whether a jurisdiction, a national competition authority has jurisdiction or not, whether it has met the national thresholds, whether they have merger control or not, even if they have merger control, even if the national competition authority doesn't have jurisdiction, if it falls below their thresholds, they can still get the commission to look at it. So basically the commission can look at any case as a result of this which you know puts them on par with the UK CMA in terms of being able to look at any case, no matter how small and insignificant it might seem. And so in that sense, they are bringing these under scrutiny. Of course, there's the Digital Markets Act, which also requires companies designated as gatekeepers to notify any transaction in the space. So they're going to get a lot of notifications. They're going to get a lot of details about any cases. And then using Article 22, they can put those under merger control scrutiny. However, the commission is still, and maybe this is because of judicially imposed constraints, the commission is still focused on preventing potential harm of mergers. The commission is still focused on let's try to get the benefits of this merger. And if that means accepting a merger subject to some behavioral commitments, we're willing to do that. And understanding that in the tech space, a, a behavioral commitment Where the behavior involves creating an API or creating an interoperability or creating an access infrastructure is effectively the same as a structural commitment because the competition authority doesn't have to engage in constant monitoring of a contract and whether a contract is being complied with, but it's more of a look is this technical solution working as intended. So it is a lot easier than in the you know industrial era kind of industrial competition, industrial sectors, the behavioral commitments in those cases where it's really like a way of enforcing a contract. But because it's a lot easier, the commission has continued to be willing to consider behavioral commitments, whereas the CMA seems to be more comfortable just blocking deals outright and is still very suspicious of behavioral commitments. So there is this little bit of divergence. But given that a lot of these are global deals, if any competition authority blocks it, that basically means that the deal is blocked globally. So the UK is kind of this um, trying to police global companies instead of really focusing on preventing harm to UK consumers sometimes, it seems.
1: It's going to be interesting to see how the Commission, CMA, and obviously other regulators around the world... particularly the DOJ, continued to approach these mergers and whether there's kind of greater convergence or, or there continues to be a difference in approach. I imagine it might go in, in trends.
2: I you know. I, I think it's fair to say as well that the current administration in the US and the DOJ has also been you know doing a similar approach in terms of trying new theories of harm and very novel, untested theories of harm. But there, at least, there is the real check of the court. They have to win in court. And that's an adversarial process where the court won't defer, you know, to the substantive assessment of the DOJ as such. You know, it's not that they won't come in and scrutinize the case that the DOJ is tr- or FTC is trying to make. They're really a full review, a judicial review. Whereas in the UK, the Competition Appeals Tribunal doesn't do a merits review, which makes it basically the the CMA can do what they want and there's nothing, no check on them substantively.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the US new approach gets tested in the courts, which I think is due to happen later this year in relation to the Microsoft transaction. And and, and even on on,
2: uh, other cases where innovation theories of harm came up like Illumina Grail, where the FTC brought a case and ultimately lost in court while the EU brought a case and, and won, at least so far.
1: So just to wrap up the session today for clients listening at home, it'd be helpful if you could give some tips to tech businesses that might be considering a transaction, which has some kind of degree of UK nexus, you know, what kind of advice would you provide them?
2: Yeah. So we've talked about it a little bit. The CMA does have broad discretion to review transactions. So it's really, you know, any even acquisition of a so-called material influence, it can be as low as a 15% shareholding. You really need to Be aware of merger control and make sure to be in touch with your lawyers and your merger control lawyers, your antitrust lawyers, and not just the corporate lawyers. (laughs) You got to loop those competition guys in as soon as possible, especially where the purchase price is high compared to the valuation. That is kind of blood in the water for competition authorities. They want to figure out why and they want to come up with an anti-competitive argument for that they kind of see it as kind of almost a evidence of it being an anti-competitive transaction and because we're talking about tech space it's very forward looking you know they're using these new theories of harm on how competition works it's more important than ever to be really aware of what kind of documents are being created you know it's it's common knowledge i think to any compliance team that you don't want to oversell A transaction internally on the impact it's going to have on the market or in terms of your ability to use your market power, any market power that you may have or create market power. And I think this is even more the case in tech because there's a lot of unknowns. And so competition authorities will love to grab on to any wayward statements made by anyone in the business, really. So there's a lot of documents being requested from all kinds of beyond the most senior executives. And so it's it's really tricky I think to make sure that what one individual might think isn't painted as what the company's intention is or what the company's capability or thinking is. And also don't forget to consider because increasingly, you know, in this deglobalizing world, we've got a lot of foreign direct investment rules subsidy rules that can cause blocks of transactions so it's not just merger control anymore there's a lot of national security concerns a lot of kind of who is the acquirer and what are the you know national security implications of the assets being acquired or from the eu perspective There's this kind of, are contracts with governments causing distortions of competition because they're subsidizing this company in a way. And so there's a whole other sort of level playing field angle as well. So yeah, it's not just antitrust anymore. It's definitely more than just the negotiations with the other corporates. But there's a lot of uh, government controls on acquisitions increasingly these days.
1: Kay, thank you so much. Those are some really helpful, practical tips for businesses. And thank you for joining us on this podcast today. Where can everyone hear more from you?
2: Yeah, you can follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter. It's Kay Jabelli, And I have a podcast as well, Monopoly Attack. It's on all major platforms where I talk with my co-host, Dr. Bastoon, about digital competition issues.
1: Thanks, Kay. Thank you for joining the podcast. And thanks, everyone, for listening.
0: Thank you very much, Kay and Chloe. That's an absolutely fascinating discussion. We hope that you have enjoyed this sixth episode of DLA Piper's series, Navigating UK Merger Control. If you've not already done so, please do have a listen to the other episodes in the series. And if you would like to know more or would like to hear us cover any other aspects of the UK merger control regime in future episodes, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Thank you for listening.